When I was asked, I thought this was an interesting topic, praying for the critically ill and, and looking at the power and importance of prayer as practitioners, as individuals in the hospital um, or in healthcare at all. And one of the Bible stories that jumped out at me was found in Luke chapter 18 and verse 35. It says, and it came to pass that as he was come nigh uh, unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passes by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, what wilt thou that I shall do unto you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he received his sight and followed him glorifying God. And all the people, and all the people when they saw it, gave praise unto God. I like this story because it really speaks to what we're trying to deal with today. It deals with what do you do with the person who is critically ill? Blindness and sickness in that time was viewed as punishment for sin. Somebody had to have sinned for him to be blind, either his parents or he sinned. And so there was a judgment on an individual like this. And, that, and that's why when he begins to pray to Jesus, folk run out to stop him, to rebuke him. He's not worthy of bringing a petition before the Messiah. And so they try to stop him. They, they, they run out before him. But when you look at the story, he does a few things to teach us about praying in critical situations. One, he is persistent. Even when folks say, hey, be quiet, don't pray. Hey, leave Jesus alone. He's persistent and he continues. Number two, when Jesus tells him to come, he follows the command of Jesus. So it is a two-way conversation. Let me tell you that prayer, we don't have time for this because we're kind of dealing with it in a medical sense, but prayer is not a one-way uh, conversation, not a one-way communication. True prayer goes back and forth between God and between the person praying. So he does that. He gets up, he comes to Jesus, and I like it because Jesus asks him a simple question. What is it that you want? His answer is, I just want to be able to see, Lord. Ah, your faith has made you whole, meaning that when you come to Christ, you come to him believing, believing that he can do what he says he can do, and he will answer prayer. And the final part of the prayer is that he, he begins, the scripture says, he leaves and follows glorifying God. And when everyone saw it, they praise God. So one, we don't just pray and ask for things. We glorify God at when God answers our prayers. And God will sometimes allow sickness, difficulty, trials, problems, because when God shows up in the situation, praises are lifted up to him when people see the deliverance that God offers. So when people ask me as a physician, you know, why is it that God allowed my loved one to get this disease? Or why is it that they're in this situation? I will often have to give a short uh, synopsis of the great controversy that sin has entered the world and that there are consequences and that God cannot control what people do. And so there are many, many consequences. But, but God will allow tough things to come into your life because if you leverage those tough things properly with God, you can build a closer relationship with God despite the difficulty and sometimes because of the difficulty that has come into your life. 
Prayer allows for that. It invites God into the darkest situations. When life itself is on the line, when it seems as if you will not survive, when all hope seems to be gone, prayer brings God into a tumultuous situation and can allow God to transform the bleakest situation into a powerful one. I was um, working as the medical director of the urgent care, and one of our doctors, Dr. Mark Sutton, who's like a brother to me now, um, was one of the doctors was there. And Mark had been raised at Venice. He'd slipped away from the faith. His testimony is powerful. But while working with us there, we began to have Bible study with, one, with each other and, and with other of the staff and faculty at the East Campus Urgent Care. He re-accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior, became recommitted to God's remnant church and, and gave his life back to Christ. In fact, after a while, he was an elder in his church down in Orange County. One night I was, I was speaking at the Drayson Center for um, a student gathering of Vespers, and he called frantically while I was still speaking. I couldn't get to it. So when I picked up my phone afterwards, I could hear him sobbing and crying in a panic on the phone that his, one of his young sons had drowned in the jacuzzi in the backyard of their house. Anybody who knows about drownings knows that a warm water drowning is worse than a cold water drowning. And the ambulance had come and taken him away. And when he got to the hospital there in Orange County, they had pronounced that his child, at best, would be brain damaged for the rest of his life. I call, after I called him back and he gave me the update, I had everyone in the room that night at the Drayson Center get on their knees and collectively break into groups and we began to pray for his son. I left there because we both worked at the urgent care and drove to the East Campus Hospital and got the nurses and the staff. We pulled into the back hallway, held hands, and we began to pray for his son. Oh, this thing is sweet. And then I got in my car, took my cousin, and drove all the way to the hospital in Orange County on a late on a Friday night and got there as he and his wife had his child laying, watching his child laying on the bed, limp and seemingly almost lifeless. And we began to pray. His wife was not uh, an Adventist, not a, not a believer. They, you know, he, he'd come back into the church and, and before she had. And, and, and we sat and we prayed and, and, and I agonized with God over that child. And I said, Lord, this is your child. I pray that tonight this hospital and these individuals will see that there's power in calling on the name of Jesus. By the time I left, no change in the condition now, by the time I hit the freeway and began to drive back to, Loma, to the Loma Linda area, I got a call on my cell phone. He said, I, you're not going to believe this, but he has awoken. He's awake, and the doctors here cannot believe it because he's conversating with them and asking for food, and there is no sign of brain damage. You see, I believe in prayer, not because it's some uh, esoteric idea in the sky, but because I have learned that like, like, like physical exercise, if you exercise your faith through prayer, prayer is the resistance training machine that will grow the muscles of faith in your life. So the question is asked, what is prayer? So let's look at it a little bit, a bit here. Merriam-Webster online says here, 1A, it's an address such as a petition to God or a God in word or thought. Another definition says a set, of order, a set order of words used in praying, an earnest request or wish, the act or practice of praying to God or a God. Collins Dictionary online says prayer is the activity of speaking to God. 
A prayer is the words a person says when they speak to God. You can refer to a strong hope that you have as your prayer. Definition, pretty straightforward. But Ellen White gives a very powerful definition of prayer. One that I like to use uh, when I think about praying. She says in a book called to Stand Apart, page 26, prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive him. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to him. The problem with not praying for patience is that, in fact, we do them a spiritual and even medical disservice. Because not giving them the connection to divine authority that many of us know exists is to shortchange the patient from the full cadre of remedies available. To not pray when a patient is in trouble, disparaged, really says, I'm not going to give everything I can to the healing in this situation. I was... um. I was, I was in my office where I work now in Bakersfield, and, and, and um, in one of the clinics I work, one of the nurses is pregnant. That video kind of reminded me of this. And she um, had gotten a call while I was in the office, and it's, it's the wound care clinic, so I go back and forth and, and take care of wounds. And when I walked back into in, before I had checked, I didn't check my phone because they often text me when they need me, and I just walked back over to see if they needed me. She was in the corner crying on the phone. And so one of the other nurses said, well, we're going to need to pray. And I said, what's going on? She said, well, her, her obstetrician had called, and, and, and the obstetrician gave her some, some, some unnerving news that, that was unclear, that, that maybe something had been found on one of the tests she had just done, and they wanted her to see a specialist, but the person on the phone at the office couldn't give her any more details. So she's kind of panicked now because she doesn't know what's going on. Now, what's interesting is that when I left my office, there was something that just told me to come over. It turns out that the text from the other nurse was, Dr. Walsh, I think we're going to need you to come over and pray. Now, I never saw the text. I just I had the sense that I needed to go over and pray. And we laid hands. Some of the people in the room don't even believe in God. Yet, because of the situation and their care for the nurse, everyone joined in and laid hands on, this, on the womb of this young lady, who was, by this time, in a full-blown panic in tears, worried about her unborn child. And I prayed. And one of the young people, who, young workers there who does not believe in God, at the end said, that was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had, to hear someone praying for someone else. That nurse calmed all the way down, and I believe the report turned out that everything is going to be fine for her and her child. Sometimes prayer is something that we're invited to do. Sometimes it's something that we have to offer to do. And it's difficult because sometimes it's difficult to know when. So the second thing I want to talk about is the importance of prayer. Well, The scripture says it like this, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Be careful for nothing can be translated, be anxious for nothing. One of the major reasons I see patients now is anxiety. 
And if you work in urgent care as a primary care, there's a large proportion of who comes in to see us. And they're anxious because I believe, I learned this from the veterans down the street at the VA hospital when I worked in addiction medicine during my preventive medicine residency, that just as those veterans taught me that God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it. The veteran, these, these drug recovering veterans taught me one of the most important spiritual principles I've learned in my life. God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it. And, and I said to one of the leaders, I said, what do you mean? He said, you see, if you try and fill the God-sized hole in your heart with alcohol or drugs or gambling or many other things, you'll simply become an addict to it. Because those things will never make you feel full, satisfied, or complete. You'll be left anxious because there's always going to be a gap around the edges of that hole that you're hoping gets filled. Prayer is one of the ways to invite God into the God-shaped, sized hole in your heart. Be anxious for nothing. In fact, I have an equation I use. I have a sermon called a stress equation. And an equation I use says that stress equals demands minus resources. So I use this with patients. When I have patients who are stressed out, I'll write on a, on a, on a, on a progress note, stress equals demands minus resources. And they'll say, well, what does that mean, doc? I say, see... Your demands are probably pretty fixed, although you can sell a car and get rid of a payment. You can try and get a new job. There are ways you can try and reduce your demands. But how many resources do you have and how fixed are your resources? And most patients will say, my resources are completely fixed. I make this much money. I'm married to this person. I work at this job. These are my kids. It's fixed. And I say, ah, that's what I want to give you. I've got good news today. I want to tell you that, in fact, your resources are unlimited. That you've got resources to deal with anything that comes at you. And they say, what do you mean? I say, have you ever heard that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills? And they say, oh, yeah, when I was a kid, I went to church. I remember vaguely them saying that. And I say, he doesn't just own a thousand cattle on one hill. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which means the God of the universe, the creator of land and sea, he who put into balance oxygen and nitrogen and allowed the clouds to rise and the moon to cross the sky, that God is the God of your resources. You have untapped and unlimited resources. So don't stop worrying. Stop fretting. If you invite God into your life and into your experience, what, he's, what Jesus says in Luke 18, 1 becomes applicable. Men ought, ought always to pray and not to faint. Don't get a syncopal episode because you wouldn't pray. Don't pass out because you wouldn't allow God into the situation. Jesus himself, Ellen White says, while he dwelt among men was often in prayer. Our Savior identified himself with our needs and weakness in that he became a suppliant, a petitioner, seeking from his father fresh supplies of strength that he might come forth braced for duty and trial. He is our example in all things. He is a brother in our infirmities, in all points tempted like as we are. But as the sinless one, his nature recoiled from evil. He endured struggles and torture of soul in a world of sin. His humanity made prayer a necessity and a privilege. He found comfort and joy in communion with his father. And if the savior of men, the son of God, felt the need of prayer, how much more should feeble, sinful mortals feel the necessity of fervent, constant prayer? If he prayed, how much more important is it that we pray? 
especially when we enter the realm of illness and sickness and even death. I remember I used to run the codes at the East Campus Hospital at night, the family medicine urgent care docs used to. And I remember one night having someone who, who totally just did not believe in God, had a patient who was just angry with God. And it was time. We thought they were going to die. They were a DNR, and, and so not much was going to be done. And I went over just to, to check on the patient. And, and I remember this patient who had verbally voiced their, dis, their disgruntled nature with God, saying to me, whispering to me in their last bit of strength, pray for me. Pray for me. There's power in prayer. Mark 9 tells the story of the demoniac boy who um, his father had taken him to the nine disciples as Peter was up with three of them in the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus was up in the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And they couldn't cast out this demon. Jesus comes down and takes a physical, a history, a physical, talks to the boy and determines the problem. He says to the father, how long has it been this way? And he says, since he was a child and it would try and take him and throw him in the water and in the fire and he foams at the mouth and all these things happen. The man prays a prayer to his father in Mark 9, 22. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He ifs Jesus. Now, my English teacher in the 11th grade was a brilliant lady, and, and she said that if is the lo- biggest word in the English language. One of the students said, but it's only two letters. She said, if makes everything possible and nothing possible all at the same time. The man ifs Jesus. If. If you can do anything, if you can help us, have compassion on us, help us. Jesus replies because Jesus is, is a great communicator. He wants to communicate with you. He wants to be in dialogue with you. He says back to the Father, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Jesus says, listen, who are you ifing? Who are you ifing? I'm the one that spoke and the world came into existence. I'm the one that knelt down in the dust and formed man out of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The the problem isn't with me. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. The Father's final prayer is one of the most important prayers to me in all of the Bible. It is a prayer that the Father cries out and says with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I want to liberate somebody today. Sometimes we think we can't pray unless our faith is full grown. This Bible story tells you that you don't just take your problems to God, take your doubt to God. The problem in our world is that when people doubt, they take their doubt to the evolutionary scientists. They take it to the secular world. They take it to the politicians. They take it everywhere else. And you take your doubt there and Satan grows your doubt like cancer and it metastasizes all over you, all over your family, all over your life. But if you take your doubt to Christ, he's, he's merciful. When this father cried this cry, spirit of prophecy on this says that in fact, if you pray this prayer sincerely, you can't be lost. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Why? Because righteousness is by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Your doubt is your biggest obstacle to finding Christ. So Jesus says, come even with your doubt. After he cast the demon out and the little boy boy is fine, the nine disciples get him to the side and say, Lord, that was embarrassing. Um, How did you do that and we couldn't do it? And he gives us the answer with which I want you to lay the the foundation for this entire three-part 
uh, series. He says that this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Some things will only move, only move because someone prayed and fasted. How many of our patients is the situation bleak, completely impossible, and no one prayed? L.O.I. says in uh, Prophets and Kings, page 175, nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God. You're powerful. The janitors are powerful. <laughs> the IT people are powerful. If they are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is power in every person that passes through these halls. When I worked at the Guam Seventh-day Adventist Clinic as, for almost a year as a, as a, as a missionary, I, I, one of the things that marveled me was just the amount of prayer that went into our patients. And the transformation I saw in lives of patients, not because we had medically done something so incredibly uh, bright, but because God had been invited into their situation. She says, if you have faith like this, you will lay hold upon God's word and upon all the helpful agencies he has appointed. Thus, your faith will strengthen and will bring to your aid the power of heaven. The obstacles that are piled by Satan across your path, though apparently as insurmountable as the eternal hills, shall disappear before the demand of faith. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Desire of Ages, page 431. I want to close with, a, with, a, with a, one of the, my favorite um, stories um, of prayer. I was moonlighting when I was in a family medicine residency in Anniston, Alabama, in a town called Wadawi. And this was a town where a few months earlier, um, the Ku Klux Klan had marched down the center of the town because a white young man had asked a half-white, half-black young lady to the prom, and it got out. The Klan marched. I didn't know. I was just trying to hustle up some extra money so, and didn't know what I was walking into. Somebody told me once, all money's not good money. Um, but it was okay. I wanted to work. I needed the experience. Part of what I, I believe, I believe moonlighting is good for uh, training physicians. And I went down there, and I didn't know when they asked me to come that I was the first black physician to ever work in that hospital. Some of the older nurses really had a problem with that. And um, it was difficult a bit. But the younger nurses made up for it. They were quite happy to have me on board. And they liked the University of Alabama football team. And I was a University of Miami hurricane. And so we actually had a good time, you know, jostling each other which team was best. One night, a lady who had uh, never heard our health message, clearly, um, and had, you know, when I took the history, had, had, had eaten the typical southern fare of where they fry everything, including tomatoes. And... Um, Smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for many years. She was about 43 at the time. Had stopped exercising a long time earlier. And decided that that day, which day? That day, she was going to get in shape. That day. So she went to the, to the gym and got on the treadmill. And she turned the thing all the way up. She, got the, she must have read something because she knew if you put the ramp up, you burn more calories. You multiply the calories you burn. So she did that. And she put the speed up as fast as she could go, thinking maybe she was back in high school. I'm not sure. And she began to run as fast as she could. And as she ran, she could feel the pretend wind blowing through her ear as she was on, her, her hair as she was on that treadmill. 
The problem was her heart had not caught up with her mind. And the cholesterol plaques that had formed over all those years had not uh, decided to dissipate when she stepped on the treadmill. In fact, one of them dislodged, flew upstream, and she had a massive MI on that machine. In fact, the way she described it later was that she had crushing substernal chest pain. She, her head went light. Her, she couldn't see her. She blacked out. She got nauseous. And she dropped on the treadmill and was tossed off the treadmill onto the floor unconscious. The man who was with her at the gym t called 911. They put her in an ambulance, brought her to me. Now, I'm already on pins and needles. I wasn't too long at the hospital. I'd already heard what had happened. I knew the climate. And when she came in, my first thought was, this woman cannot die, Lord. I'm the first black doctor here. Everybody's got to live, Lord. I don't care if we got to pull a Lazarus, but Lord, we, everybody got to live, Lord. I want to go home. So... She camps in, she's unconscious, she's, 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 she's on the table, we take an EKG, and there are tombstone signs, massive SD segment elevation, and I'm, at this point, I start to sweat, um, and I said, Lord, this is trouble. Now, there was a, a rad tech, the guy who shot the films for us, who had studied the Bible in such a way that he had begun to keep the seven-day Sabbath, although he had never heard of a denomination that did so. So just by his study of the scripture, he became a, a Sabbath keeper. And he'd go to church on Sunday, but he'd keep Friday sunset to Sabbath sunset every week because he just read in the scripture that that's what he was supposed to do. I told him, I said, I want you to go in the back. While we run this code, I need you praying because I'm not going to order an x-ray anytime soon. So he went in the back and he began to pray. And I, I got a cardiologist in Birmingham on the phone and we gave TPA. I'd, ne I'd never by myself done that. Um, I don't even know if they still use TPA, probably not, for good reason. So I, my prayers were, were very justified then. Um, and, and I didn't, couldn't ask her if she had a history of brain tumors or all the other stuff I was supposed to ask her. In faith, I had to give the medicine because if not, I knew she wouldn't live. I gave it and within, it felt like five minutes, but probably a lot sooner, she flatlined. I think at the same time, I, I kind of did too. Um, <laughs> she flatlined which is later on I found out what was supposed to happen. And let me tell you something, I prayed. I prayed like I've never prayed before or since, I don't think, in my life. And I asked God, I said, Lord, this is your child. And I'm your humble servant tonight. I laid my hand, I know the nurses probably thought I was cuckoo at this point because they're all telling me, what do we want us to do? What do you want us to do? I laid my hand on her forehead, closed my eyes and, and silently Ask God to allow this woman to live. As I opened my eyes, I heard blip, blip, perfect, normal sinus rhythm. Thank, thank you, Jesus. I said, you know what? Before she leaves, the helicopter's on its way. Let's, let's make sure she has all the meds on board that they want. Um, maybe we can give her two more morphine. I said, give her the two more morphine. And, and her, the man who came with her ran into the room, do not give her any more morphine. She does not need any more morphine. That woman that was unconscious sat up on the table, Choop. said, that man is not my husband. Give me the morphine. <laughs> That's when I knew the miracle was complete. <laughs> I want to leave you with an understanding. There's no shame in praying in the sick bedroom. It is one of the great privileges we have been offered as healthcare professionals to pray for those who need prayer. 
And they won't always want it. But as the video said, sometimes just to offer it means that the individual understands that the person caring for them is in the care of Almighty God. And sometimes just that thought is the seed needed to move an individual and to change the way they see the God of the universe. I believe in prayer, especially for the critically ill. I just ask God to continue to bless this great institution as his servants and soldiers in this institution but continue to lift Jesus Christ up and pray on this campus. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to go through your word and, and through your inspired words. Father God, we are all sinners. We're all fallen. Lord, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. But Father God, we believe in you. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the power of the blood that was shed on Calvary's tree. And we believe that on the at the resurrection, you gain victory over the grave and death. But Father God, I pray that all of us here and even beyond here, those that have streamed in or listened in, we would understand forever the importance of lifting up those who are ill in prayer. And Father God, every time we get an opportunity, we will offer the most powerful medicine in the universe, a connection to Jesus Christ. It's our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.